This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Katsuya Hirano, Associate Professor in the Department of History at the University of California, Los Angeles. Dr. Hirano is the author recently of Settler Colonialism in the Making of Japan's Hokkaido in the Rutledge Handbook of the History of Settler Colonialism, published in 2016, as well as in Japanese, Meiji Ishi no Naihasuru Heterogoroshia, Ainu no Keiken to Kotoba, in the May 2018 special issue of Gendai Shiso. Dr. Hirano, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. One of my goals with this whole podcast was to look at the Meiji Restoration from as many perspectives as possible and consider how what's happening in the Meiji period is impacting different areas of the Japanese islands and certainly different people in the Japanese islands. And so recently, your research has been talking about Japanese settler colonialism in Hokkaido uh, in the Meiji period and, and the dispossession and deracination of the Ainu. So with this in mind, what is the perspective of the Meiji Restoration when we're looking at it? from, say, the northern borderlands and for the Ainu people especially. So, first of all, thank you so much for inviting me to this interview. I'm really excited to talk about Meiji Ishin from Ainu perspective. In my current research, I'm interested in the question of what role the settler colonization of Hokkaido played in the racialization of the Ainu people and the formation of modern Japan. Uh, in this sense, my view is different from typical understanding of the colonization of Hokkaido as an origin of Japanese imperialism. I'm trying to examine how the creation of Meiji Japan was predicated on the politics of racism or racialization of the Ainu people and the capitalistic enterprise. In other words, racialization is always a social and relational process and therefore worked for the formation of both Ainu and Japanese people as mutually constitutive process. It is a configuration of two races in a relational way. It was a racialization of Japanese that made possible the racialization of Ainu and vice versa. Of course, we must not forget the real drive for the colonization of Hokkaido came from Meiji leaders' attempt to determine Japan's sovereignty, i.e. the territoriality against Russia, which had also an ambition to colonize Hokkaido and to explore and exploit resources such as coals, trees, and fishes in the island for their project of industrial capitalism. Major Japan's view of Hokkaido as a terra nurius, which means no man's land, and in Japanese, actually you can find this term in actual documents, uh, it's called mushuchi, worked as a decisive rationale for its expropriation of Ainu people's lands and subsequent migration policy known as kaitaku, meaning opening the land. This settler colonial policies as a mode of occupation was also crucial for Japan's claim of sovereignty over the island. It was based on this conception of empty land that legitimized Meiji Japan's claim to be the master of the island. In other words, racialization played a decisive role in both the expropriation of the land and the construction of sovereignty. It allowed for the Meiji leaders to claim the Ainu people to be an inferior race who possessed no ability to cultivate and utilize the land for Japan's capitalist development, as well as to protect Japan's border against Russia. It was this racialist characterization of the Ainu that naturalized the Japanese people as a superior race and thus their ownership of Hokkaido. 
as much as one's possession cannot be separated from others' dispossession, or someone's freedom cannot be separated from others' unfreedom, the positive racialization of the Japanese cannot be separated from Ainu's negative racialization. They are mutually constitutive. It is in this sense that the Ainu association called Hokkaido Utari Kyokai has argued that the so-called Ainu problem, that means the century-long economic, uh, political, and cultural discrimination and impoverishment, has been a shameful part of Japan's modernization. So my contention is that Japan-centric view of Meiji Ishin cannot demonstrate this mutually constitutive process of racialization. Rather, it tends to reify Japan or the Japanese as a given subject of history, that is, as a driving force for the making of modern Japan. A late Ainu activist, Kaizawa Tadashi, always asserted that the modern history of Japan and Hokkaido has been written exclusively from the Japanese perspective. That is, it violates, violently omits and silences perspective of those who are conquered and colonized. It is extremely important to bring the so-called backstory of Japan's modernization to the forefront and explore the processes and logics of the formation of the modern world from a relational perspective or perspective of interarticulation between the colonizers and colonized. You mentioned the role of, of Japanese capital accumulation mm, in, yeah. in the process of colonization. So yes. Could you elaborate on that a bit more? Right. So, you know, in the case of Hokkaido, clearly, I mean, capitalism didn't kick off right away. So I think the importance of settler colonialism in Hokkaido was to, first of all, take the land from Ainu people so that the land can be utilized for, first of all, migration policy, therefore bringing labor power from mainland to Hokkaido, right? And so that really the very first phase of this move towards capitalist development in Hokkaido. Actually, it was not quite until like um, Russo-Japanese war that you began to see the intensive capital investment in Hokkaido and Zaibatsu will put a lot of money into Hokkaido. And, you know, initial phase of migration policy was not a very successful one in Hokkaido because not many people wanted to move there due to the weather and lack of infrastructure. So it's really a kind of steady and slow process uh, through which I think Meiji Japan managed to finally implant some of the features of capitalist development in Hokkaido. And this focus on kaitaku, kind of the opening of the land, right. uh, seems very important. The introduction of railways, other infrastructure, mining, uh, all right. the other types of exploitation of the land, as you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, and this seems to be common across not only the Japanese main islands, but in Taiwan and Korea as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. I think, you know, uh, one of the reasons why I stopped sort of paying attention to Ainu and Hokkaido case was precisely, I think, its importance in, in the larger structure, picture of the development of Japanese empire. And, you know, I think many of the things that, had, that were implemented in Hokkaido would later be applied to the colonization of Taiwan and, and Korea. At the same time, we shouldn't sort of assume that uh, all these three different places had exactly the same experience of colonization. Say in the case of Taiwan, there was really no settler colonization, right? I mean, Japanese people send police officers and of course, colonial bureaucrats there, but they didn't really promote a massive migration from mainland to Taiwan. 
Plus, Japanese attitudes towards indigenous Taiwanese was very different from the one they had towards Ainu. The Taiwanese case was extremely violent, as you know. Um, Taiwanese aborigines also refused uh, to submit to Japanese rule. So there was a lot of violent crash. Whereas, you know, in the case of Hokkaido, I think that kind of violent conflict between Japanese and Ainu people had already taken place during Tokuna time. And you can really see the rapid decline in population, Ainu population, towards the end of Tokuna time already. And so by the time Meiji, uh, Japan decided to really formally colonize Hokkaido and declare it to be emperor's land um, in the name, you know, actually uh, to, to be Terra Nurius in the name of emperor's land. Um, the Ainu population was really much smaller compared to the early Tokuna time. And uh, Ainu people didn't put up uh, that sort of violent resistance, just like those um, Taiwanese aborigines did. So there are lots of many differences. But at the same time, I think in so many ways, Hokkaido was really the very first modern colony uh, within Japanese empire that Japan really experimented. So it has a lot of sort of ramification and sig- significance. And as you mentioned, in this process of opening the land, it also requires the deracination of the Ainu population, mm. what David Howell, of course, called the ethnic negation of right, the right. Ainu people. So could yeah. you could you expand a bit more on what is happening to the indigenous inhabitants there during mm. the Meiji period? Yeah, so I mean, once again, you know, it's very hard to generalize because I think different Ainu group experience different kinds of, uh, I would say, violence. But if I try to simplify, I'd say that until 1899, when Japanese government implemented na- former native protection law, of course, which has its own problems because it reinforced Ainu to be uh, farmers with the condition that they, they really voluntarily sort of accept to be a farmers. Um, you know, Japanese government is not going to sub- support or help them out. And so that was a precondition in the law. Lots of the Ainu people had a hard time transforming themselves into farmers. But before that, Japanese government really didn't do much to protect Ainu or provide uh, alternative ways for the Ainu people to survive. Instead, uh, they implemented a series of laws which re-banned Ainu's traditional sort of way of life, uh, certain practice fishing and hunting. They are severely restricted. And then they are displaced from their original habitation and moved to a, a deep, deep forest where they probably couldn't make much living out of hunting and, and fishing either. So they struggle for nearly 30 years uh, since 1869. That's the year when Ainu's land became Hokkaido. And so about 30 years, Ainu were left alone. Some, some Ainus, for example, were forcefully relocated from Karafuto and to Hokkaido. And then some of them die. I mean, some of them died of disease. And so, you know, you can really think of so many different cases of tragedy and violent sort of treatment on the part of the Japanese government. So if I try to simplify these 30 years, just borrowing some iron scars um, words, they are literally abandoned and displaced and abandoned for 30 years. That's how oftentimes people like Kaizawa, or Chiri uh, Mashiho describe our experience, dislocation and abandonment until 1899. 
you recently published this article in Gendai Shiso, kind of rethinking the Meiji Restoration. And so when we look at the Meiji Restoration and, and keeping in mind this history of the dispossession and deracination of the Ainu that you were just describing, what is the significance of the restoration within Japanese history more broadly? You know, there are so many reasons why the major restoration is important or significant for the global history. You know, but given my current interest, I'd say the significance of major issue is precisely its connection to the global process in which racialization and capitalism gave birth to the modern world. And one of the ways in which we can underscore the global nature of Meiji Shin is what I'd like to call the irony of liberal humanism. Meiji Japan's policies are filled with the language of emancipation and liberation, as you know, but at the same time, they are equally about a new form of domination and enslavement. As Lisa Lowe recently sets of the making of the modern world, Quotes, colonized peoples created the condition for liberal humanism. End quotes. Racialization of the world and international division of labor emerged simultaneously as part of the global regime of nation states that were constitutive of humanism. As I said a moment ago, someone's right to freedom is predicated on others' dispossession of land and denial of the rights to self determination. Or in the case of displaced peasants who became industrial workers, their liberation from feudal mode of agricultural production was a path towards a new form of unfreedom, or some historian call the commodification of labor power. Liberalization is not antithetical to enslavement, but it is oftentimes predicated on the latter in the making of the modern world, and Meiji Japan is no exception. 1868 is a date that represents the Meiji government's perspective. For example, for the Ainu people, it could be 1869, the year of formal colonization, or even 1899, the year of implementing formal native protection law that marked the beginning of modern time. And this so-called beginning meant a beginning of conquest, dispossession, displacement, poverty, and struggle for survival. In other words, for the Ainu people, the Meiji Ishin signifies the beginning of colonization, thus the destruction of their communities, the negation of their long-established relationship with the land and nature, and permanent marginalization within Imperial Japan. The similar things can be said about the Okinawan people. And my earlier work on popular culture and its relationship with the process of Japan's modernization also suggests that ordinary people in Meiji period had different understanding of the Meiji Ishin and therefore different conception of time. It is absolutely necessary to investigate, in my view, the politics of chronology or temporalization. Chronology always contains epistemic violence. It structures the otherwise very messy and deeply overdetermined historical processes from a specific point of view. It is absolutely crucial to not only pluralize the meaning of the beginning, but also explore the implications of multiple beginnings that are overlooked or silenced by a master chronology. In this way, we can overcome national history paradigm and resurrect deeply contingent, heterogeneous, and relational history.
You mentioned before the permanent discrimination of the Ainu peoples, certainly in the in the Meiji period, but this continues until today. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, again, I think there are many different phases of Ainu people's struggle. But if I just talk about contemporary scene, um, there was a little bit this sort of revival of Ainu activism, I think, clearly, right? As a result of Japanese government recognizing Ainu people as indigenous people in Hokkaido. But I think at the same time, real point of contention right now is whether the Japanese government actually accept indigenous rights for Ainu people. And I think indigeneity and the indigenous rights are very different. At least the difference that the Japanese government is consciously making. You know, when the Japanese government recognizes uh, Ainu as indigenous people, they are basically referring to Ainu as a culturally distinct people who had inhabited the island for many centuries, well before the Japanese moved to the island. And I think that's, of course, that's a very important step forward. But I think eventually, and especially when I talked to some Ainu activists, the sentiment I received from them was that the most important matter for them was really whether they can have a decent life whether we are talking about economic rights or social rights, they still feel structural discrimination in terms of job and education, income level. And this is really a very mundane daily matters. But I think that's where they truly do feel legacy of colonialism is still persisting. And only way to overcome that sort of unevenness and discrimination between Japanese people and Ainu is really that Japanese government recognize Ainu people's indigenous rights to the land. And in some way, Ainu people get back the rights to some form of self-determination, how they want to run the economy, how they want to manage their land. You know, there are still lots of restrictions legally imposed on Ainu people. So I think this seems to be the kind of battleground right now. And plus, just another episode, you know, which happened recently is the returning the bonds, Ainu people's bonds from major Japanese universities. And as you know, the major Japanese universities stole Ainu people's bonds from the graveyard from Meiji period on until actually post-war time to carry out some kind of experiment checking their DNA and their origins. And there's this theory that maybe Ainu people came from, actually, they are much more closer to Europeans. And so there has been this kind of anthropological curiosity on the part of Japanese researchers. And I think they really took uh, so many bonds from Ainu people's graveyard, and then they kept them in the uh, university, sometimes storage house or library. So, you know, recently Ainu people really tried to get them back. Uh, to say that it was stolen and they, sh- they should return it to the community, including universities like Hokkaido University, have been refusing, had been refusing to return and recently, just last couple of years, uh, they began to return the bonds to Ainu uh, people. So it's considered, once again, big triumph, uh, step forward for Ainu people, but still, places like University of Tokyo and some other major universities do not want to address this problem of keeping bonds, high bonds in, 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 the, in, their, in their facilities. And then they haven't really openly apologized or recognized or the best thing they could say was, we have been taking care of them very well, so don't worry about it. And this is the kind of response that uh, I know people have been receiving from these uh, major institutions. So I think there's still lots of sort of uh, issues to resolve. And plus, of course, Japanese politicians always repeatedly make a point, I mean, make remarks such as, 
Han people no longer exist in Japan. <laughs> Han people have already died out. And that was just a few, I think that was just last year or a few years ago, they made such a remark. So, you know, there was a huge protest, of course, and um, eventually politicians are forced to apologize. But at the level of consciousness, I think still lots of Japanese people are not very much aware of the history of Ainu, what they went through in modern time, not to mention during early modern time. So at the level of even public consciousness and public education, I think there's still a long way to go. Since I've been in Vancouver, I've been learning more and more about the similar dispossession and deracination of the First Nations people uh, yes, in British yes. Columbia. And it, it sounds like yeah. a very a very similar process. Mm. Yes, yes. I really think so. I think that's really another reason why I think it's kind of important to talk about Ainu experience as part of a global history and ongoing sort of contemporary politics. I think this problem of indigeneity or settler colonization and dispossession. I think all these things are shared experience by so many indigenous people around the world. And I think it's really important to situate Ainu history in that perspective. And here in Canada, we had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where the government right. acknowledged the, the role that they played in residential schools in particular, but in the kind of systematic yeah. ethnic genocide of mm-hmm. First Nations peoples. And so there's there's kind of concerted efforts to preserve, mm-hmm. to revive some of the First Nations culture. Yeah. And I understand in Japan as well, isn't there attempts now to start teaching Ainu in schools again? Yeah, right. I think some people are doing that, uh, especially in Hokkaido now. And, uh, you know, they try to make it a part of a kind of elementary school curriculum. But I think it's, this progress is extremely slow. And I think I have to say, compared to... Canadian case and, and the Taiwanese case, for example. I think Japanese uh, government response to uh, this problem in indigenous people has been extremely slow. And I think, you know, I think that's, that's one of the complaints I always hear from my people that look at the, what's happening in Canada or look at the, what's happening in Taiwan. Compared to that, the ways in which Japanese government try to resolve so-called Ainu problem <laughs> has been just so... Uh, you know, they find it just completely disrespectful and lack of sincerity. And, you know, um, Japanese government is really trying to build now um, a new museum in 2020 to get ready for Olympic, Tokyo Olympic, right? And I think this even attempt to try to create a um, new Ainu museum in Shiraoi. Shiraoi already has a museum, Ainu museum, but I think they really try to make a much bigger and more sophisticated one uh, for the sake of Olympic. But I think this even attempt to try to build this new museum has not been very well received by many Ainu activists. And I oftentimes I hear once again uh, them complaining that if uh, this is a simple gesture towards the international community, that the Japan is making a very important progress concerning this indigenous problem, um, this is really mistaken. And this is very misleading in the sense that, you know, Ainu people's everyday life com- condition has not been improved or even not addressed. I, Japanese government always stop at the point, point of promoting Ainu culture, but nearly not resolving the structural problem of economic and, and cultural inequality, especially economic inequality and social inequality. So I think that's really, you know, of course, Japanese government has never said that Japanese government had carried out some kind of genocidal or, you know, eliminately sort of politics uh, towards Ainu people, like the way the Canadian government acknowledged. 
Uh, so that's a really crucial difference. I mean, even with that acknowledgement, I mean, there's still some of the same structural problems that mm. you were addressing, just like in the Japanese case here as well. What is to be done? Then? I mean, what, what should the government be doing to support? I don't know. I mean, what kind of step they can take? I mean, to, to complete up to, I think, what Ainu people want, I think, what, how they want to improve their living condition by working together with the Japanese government, and I think Japanese people too. As I said, I think the Japanese people's level of consciousness concerning this whole modern history is still very, uh, has a lot of problems, especially with regard to colonialism in general, not to mention colonialism in Hokkaido. I mean, not many people know that actually Hokkaido was not part of Japan <laughs> before Meiji period. So I think you're starting even with that kind of recognition and then how and why Japanese government carried a very aggressive uh, migration policy and what are the costs of that migration policy. All these things are never quite discussed in the school textbooks. Uh, if you study uh, Japanese history in uh, elementary school and the middle school, even high school. So I think the whole curriculum needs to be changed to include uh, more about uh, in your world, um, sort of more negative side or dark side of the, of the, of the modern history. Um, you know, starting with that, then of course, then going back to the much more important practical everyday life matters, I think everyday matters, um, I think it's really up to the people who identify themselves as I knew, uh, who think that they were really suffering from this structural discrimination as a result of this long history of marginalization. What they want, I think, has to be determined by them. When I went to Japan for the first time in, let's see, it was 2001. And so the early 2000s, I remember there was a big boom mm. in Japanese punk music. Okay. <laughs> and, it, and they were all Okinawan bands. Mm, that's right, yes. And so there was this, this kind of flourishing of memory of the Ryukyu Islands and yes. this kind of distinct Ryukyu and culture. And right. I remember there was even one very popular brand of jeans that mm. had the characters Ryukyu on the back. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Right. And so and so there is there's this kind of this kind of recognition that it is a distinct culture. And at that time it was a, a, a really cool culture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the, how come that's happening with Okinawa but not necessarily with Ainu? I think that's a really complicated actually it's an interesting cultural phenomenon too right I mean how and why suddenly Ryukyu Okinawa became a sort of in a way hot commodity right I mean it's kind of you know some some cool thing to to follow and you know as, as you can see also I mean at the time there are lots of Okinawan singers and pop singers coming out and you know really swept actually pop pop culture scene too so um I don't know how all that happened altogether. I think there has to be much better ex- somebody who can give a much better explanation. Than I can. But but I, I I can probably say why it wasn't happening or it's not yet happening to Ainu people. Actually, my guess is it may happen because I think right now 
sort of uh, Ainu culture, and you know, I mean, I don't know whether you are familiar with uh, manga. Uh, it's a really um, best-selling manga now. Um, yeah, it's it's about Ainu Ainu experience in modern time. Yeah, and it's ongoing. Um, I think it's published from um, Kodansha, and uh, you know, so you can see that in pop culture now coming out, and then a lot of young, actually, so I mean, self-claimed Ainu people who are living in Tokyo now forming uh, some, you know, cultural groups or they are singing traditional Ainu songs and dancing. And and also some people, I mean, some artists try to, you know, transform traditional Ainu song into a more pop style. And I heard that they oftentimes gather lots of crowd and audiences uh, when they hold um, events and concert. So it may be happening again, but I think... You know what concerns me is really this. This you know, I mean, it's good for for people to come to recognize that there are different cultural forms that exist uh, within Japan, and and then become interested in the history. Right? I think that's good sort of entry point. But at the same time, I think unless the the government really take it seriously, I mean, to the point that I mean, for example, Japanese government never recognize a doka seisak right and assimilation policy as a problem. They still use, oh, you know, Ainu people are assimilated. And then, yeah, we feel sorry that we deny your culture, language, and traditional culture. But they never talk about how and why assimilation even started, right? I mean, that is actually occupation of the land, taking away the land. And I think that is the most actually violent process and experience that Ainu people had. Then after they uprooted, um, now it becomes a question of assimilation. Right? That's the only ways in which they can survive uh, as part of the Imperial Japan. So I think that that's sort of acknowledge, simple acknowledgement that, okay, that's how history took place. And I think that's where Japanese government has a responsibility, Japan has a responsibility towards Ainu people. That, that kind of simple sort of acknowledgement of historical facts and the processes is really the important starting point. I think compared to the Ryukyu and Okinawa, I think the Japanese government acknowledgement and the Japanese people's knowledge about this process is much, much lower. I don't know whether that's again related to this interesting sort of popular cultural phenomena about Ryukyu identity and Ryukyu culture, whether that really helped lots of Japanese people to be much more aware of history of Ryukyu and Okinawa. I guess we, we need an Ainu Shima Uta or not a yeah, that's, or... <laughs> that's Ainu Shima Uta. <laughs> that's exactly right. Using some traditional instruments and <laughs> turn that into a more pop style, right? Yeah. <laughs> but I wonder, I wonder if it, it, there is a commodity aspect to it. I mean, yeah, right. It's a commodification of culture, yeah. Well, well, and also, I mean, because yeah. Okinawa is a tourist destination now. I, I mean, exactly. Hokkaido, of course, has its Hokkaido, tourist right? appeal, yeah, but, yeah. but not that far north, right? I mean, like you can go yeah. up to Wakanai or, or something like that. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, a yeah. lot more people want to go to Okinawa because it's the beach and, you know, that kind of summer culture. That's right. That's right. You know, it's kind of interesting. I mean, that, you're right. I think it comes with the tourist culture too, but I think... Right now, once again, I think now Hokkaido actually m- could be equally popular. And in some ranking, I saw that Hokkaido is the most favorite tourist destination now, even among Japanese people, um, especially after Sri um, Wan and the earthquake and then, you know, nuclear power plant explosion, right? So they, they began to, again, renew their interest in 
the very tasty food and healthy food coming from、uh, Hokkaido, right? Because Hokkaido is always seen as a sort of kitchen of Japan <laughs> and, and a provider of all these rich resources. So,、um, I heard that,、um, you know, after, after the earthquake,、uh, suddenly the popularity of Hokkaido went up and、um, lots of people started traveling to Hokkaido. So, again, we don't know. There, there could be some kind of interesting development here in terms of correlated, you know, phenomena. That with the increasing interest in Hokkaido as a tourist destination, and then also young Aino people coming out with a sense of pride and identity, and then now getting into manga culture. And some, I heard that manga may be made into TV series too. So <laughs> we, we, we never know. Maybe there's a chain effect there. <laughs> But of course, that always brings other questions,、mm-hmm. right? It's the kind of I mean, there's a certain other type of environmental devastation、exactly. that happens and, and、exactly. cultural essentialism that comes、That's、along、exactly、with、right. repackaging and selling things for tourists. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, again, you know, Ainuk activists are very much aware of that sort of ambiguity and even ambivalence,、um, right? I mean, this kind of culture industry, you know, they don't want to be commodified. They always say Hokkaido tourism is always dependent upon. The commodification of Ainu culture and Ainu cultural essentialism. And, you know, they, they're always stuck with this dilemma that, on the one hand, in order for them to survive, they have to kind of capitalize on it. They have to take advantage of that promotion of Ainu culture. But on the other hand, you know,、uh, they, they are clear aware of the danger that is, they're always constantly made into some kind of object of curiosity and, you know, some kind of, as you say, some kind of essentialism or even strange orientalism, I guess, within, within, within、uh, Japanese culture. So,、um, you know, they, they are really unhappy about it.、Um, some people do use the term exactly like a shohinka, Ainu bunka no shohinka. Right. I'm against Ainu Bunka no Shohinka. That, that's actually the main the kind of phrase that many activists repeat again and again as a way to improve、uh, or regain some kind of respect and self respect for Ainu people. So I think you know, there are different levels of identity politics here.、Um, one is a really much more commodified one that is so closely tied to this kind of tourist industry. Pop culture in Japan. On the other hand, I think、um, for Ainu people, the identity politics is really an assertion of indigenous rights、uh, in relation to their you know, daily life and daily struggle. Also, historical so, so assertion of their presence throughout modern history. So I think th- these two politics kind of in- somehow coexist in a strange way and intersect with each other. I mean, some activists are really aware of this, you know, very ambivalence. The politics of ambivalence, they have to pray. You know, there are so many things that I know people can do now to make make living, actually, and especially in relatively, you know, touristy area. They, you know, they run shops selling Ainu artifacts, right? I mean, that's how they make living. So, yeah, it's a very, really complicated issue. Yeah.、Um. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. 
Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.